Welcome to Season 2 of Song Chronicles, Episode 3. My guest today is Jeff Trott. If you don't recognize his name, you'll recognize his work. An award-winning songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist. He's played with World Party, Tears for Fears, Stevie Nicks, Jason Mraz, John Paul White of the Civil Wars, Liz Fair, and collaborated with prominent artists across genres and perhaps is best known for his collaborations with Sheryl Crow. I spoke with him recently from his writer's den in his house in Nashville. Jeff's first major label gig was as the guitarist in the Bay Area rock band Wire Train in the mid-80s. Jeff met Cheryl while she was working on her debut album. They hit it off and have been playing and writing music together ever since. Their songwriting partnership succeeds, he says, because we have a good flow. Maybe when she's getting too literal and wants something twisted, she'll ask me, what would you say here? Besides many Cheryl Crow records and the recent Hootie and the Blowfish album, his producer credits include Fastball, Leighton Meister, Max Gomez, and Martha Wainwright. Jeff and I have known each other a long time. We've crossed paths and shared friends and made music over the years. In Jeff's words, my art, my medium, is collaboration. Along with discussing the art of collaboration, we also talk about the mysterious process of songwriting and how Purple Rain led to his gig with World Party. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Trott. Good morning. Hi there. Live and in person, kind of. <laughs> so these are your new digs. Well, not so new anymore, but your Nashville. This is my Nashville hang. Yeah. My writer's den or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Is that in your basement of your house? Yeah. Yeah. It's originally, I don't know if I told you this, but when I found this place, it has a really nice pool house. And immediately I thought, okay, studio, this is perfect, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when we made the move from L.A., I didn't realize how much stuff we had, you know, collected over the years from moving from Portland. We had like two storage things, you know, and all that stuff that all came with us. I mean, we got rid of a lot of things. But then when we moved here and the moving company gets all the stuff and, okay, this is this is for the studio. So they go out to the pool house and I totally realize, oh, my God, <laughs> like half of the stuff is going to fit in the pool house. What am I going to do? And it was like pouring rain. So I just had to make one of those like call shots. All right, basement, you know, so. But it's not too bad because the basement, it actually has some natural light. So it has these windows that are just like near the ceiling, whatever, I don't know what they're called, but, and then there's back doors that go out into our backyard. So it's basement, but it's not completely like a dungeon or something like that, you know. Is that where you were all hanging out during the tornadoes where you are right now in the basement? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a utility room that has our air conditioning and all that and it's pretty sizey so we just you can go in there but it's so funny the first tornado warning that we got you know we were like all huddled in there and then we were talking to neighbors on the phone and that kind of stuff and they're like oh don't worry about it this like happens all the time tornado warning 
you know, you guys, yeah, you guys are new. You don't know what, you know. <laughs> it's like, it would be the equivalent of an earthquake here. You know, you continue talking on the phone while you're being shaken. Oh, hey, that's kind of cool. Or a little earthquake, a little, you know, like, yeah, Californians get so used to that. I mean, I went through two big earthquakes. I experienced the, um, the San Francisco one in, uh, I think that was in 1989 or something like that. I was living in San Francisco at the time. And I remember looking out into the street from my apartment, which was above like this little laundromat. Yeah. And I remember seeing like the power lines going like this up and down, up and down. I'm like, oh my God, this is for real. Yeah. You know? And then of course, you know, the Northridge one happened and I was living in Silver Lake and that apartment just was like, just the entire ceiling came down on top me while I was sleeping four o'clock in the morning. Wow. We'll never forget that. <laughs> I was living in London and moved back to LA after that happened. Yeah. It was the same year, but I moved like in December. That's right. You were in London. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, totally. Yeah, you missed a lot. You missed the Rodney King thing and all that stuff, which is, you know, I moved from San Francisco in 1990 or 91, I think. 91, 91 because it was right after World Party. And when I moved down there, it was like one disaster after another, like the Rodney King thing, the earthquake. And my parents are like, what the hell are you doing living down in LA? And I'm like, it's where all musicians need to be right now, so. And it was a good move for you in terms of your work and career. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you have to look at the big picture sometimes. I think maybe because I went through the earthquake in San Francisco that um, the LA one was frightening but I was you know like all Californians just got used to it like oh ooh, this is a little bit more you know like I remember that one like four o'clock in the morning waking up and I had plaster all over my face laying in bed going oh man and then no lights anywhere you know all the power is off and then I get up to like try to figure out what's going on. And I'm like stepping on broken glass and all this stuff. It was like, oh, I'm just going to go back to bed and <laughs> hope that it's just a nightmare, you know. That's one thing I a note that I remember that I have to put into effect again. It says, if you live in California, keep a pair of shoes next to your bed. <laughs> totally. That's like... It's a smart thing. Yeah. It's almost like if you move to California, you need to, you know, the, instead of getting a basket full of wine and cheese, you should get some little slippers or something. You're like, okay. <laughs> You'll get what we're talking about after a while. Yeah, Christmas wreath under the tree, slippers and flashlights. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Yeah. You could just have one of those, welcome to California. It's Christmas time. Welcome to California. And it could be like a little bit sardonic or whatever, you know. That, that's funny. I love it's great yeah you gotta have a laugh during this time because it's just really crazy to make sense of it absolutely yeah so i was we've known each other so long so we could easily just have a great conversation about all the things in our lives that overlap and by the way i did call carl the other day i talked to him awesome <laughs> yeah we facetimed and he was in his studio and having fun with the new keyboard and uh yeah, he said he might send some ideas, and I, I hope that happens. That'd be super fun. Oh, I know. I've been trying to think of like, okay, what do you send Carl Wallinger, you know? And I've been doing a little bit of organizing in this COVID time, you know, like trying to have some control. So like then organizing stuff like my equipment. 
Yeah. And I found like all these like weird little drum machines that I collected over the years, this thing called the monochord that is just has like samba and stuff like that. And I thought, man, I'll run that through an amp, some delay, you know, and then maybe like scream out some melody and then send it to him and see what he does with that, you know. <laughs> that would be crazy. Get the ball started. I'd look forward to hear what you two would come up with together. That that would be fantastic. The only time that we've actually written a song, when I was in the band, we had this one sort of like play day where we weren't, you know, doing world party stuff. And Carl said, okay, we're going to write a 10 minute opus. It's going to be in like five, two minute segments. And okay, the first one is going to be about some calamity or whatever. So we called it nitrogen lung door or something like that. It was some weird like iron lung thing or mm -hmm. some bizarre, you know, totally made for radio, not, but it was for fun. And that's the thing that I really love about Carl is like, he's a real serious songwriter, but he also has that like sort of childlike, you know, curiosity for music, any kind of music made, but it's like a kind of a journey. And th I think that's why I connected so well with him is I have that same sort of aptitude. Yeah, you know? it's a real enthusiasm. Yeah, and I love too that he's committed to being a real artist, making a statement, making an album. Cause I said, you know, you don't have to be so scared of making an album cause people are putting out singles. And he was like, it's gotta be a whole thing. And I love that and he's great at it. He is. I mean, he does really look at it as like this, you know, complete work that relates each song relating. You know, there's a whole art to that. Obviously, it's hard to sell that kind of thing these days. But but I, I admire, you know, anybody that goes about it. And I understand why, because, you know, you get into this. I think when you make a record, it's sort of like a snapshot of your life at that time and all the things. And it's not just, I got my heart broke and what a fucked up day today is or whatever. Or maybe it's all of those things, but you kind of are dealt these inspiration cards. And I think you have, as you're going on that journey, then you end up with this, you know, set of, uh, it's like, what did Tom Waits always called songs like little little children or something, how you, how much attention you pay to them. And then they grow up to be, you know, smart and successful or whatever. And some don't want to really deal with. So, and I thought like, that's a pretty good analogy, you know, I, relate. I can relate to that, but yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, I guess it's the same as like some people will paint, even though you don't need to do that anymore. You can paint with a computer. Or you can do a lot of other, there's a lot of different artistic medias. But that's one that, you know, yeah, it's kind of boutique-ish now. Yeah. And somebody's got to do it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad Carl is wanting to do that. I mean, it's been a long time since he has. It's been a long time, but it doesn't matter the minute something comes out. Yeah. Because somebody like him, we are missing a World Party record, you know. But usually people are so consumed with the cacophony of everything. Yeah. Who can possibly watch all the great things being streamed out there? And lately I've been getting books and reading short stories again. And it's hard to get back into reading because because it's been so long, especially after raising kids, as you know, you're not going to spend your downtime reading a book. You're going to do a whole bunch of other things probably first. Well, it's funny, you know, you should mention that because it seems like these days we're reading way more than we used, or at least 
me. I mean, I used to collect books. I used to mm-hmm. even collect first edition books of like Jerzy Kaczynski and stuff like that, Paul Auster. And I would read books and really get into it and it would fuel my creativity or it was just a comforting thing too. Sometimes I feel like curling up with a book, Yeah, you know, even if it's like a really dark book, there's something comforting about reading somebody's thoughts and stuff like that. But we're so consumed with reading the newsfeed. First thing in the morning I do, and sometimes I, I have to give myself a break from that because you're just, you're reading so much of this. A lot of it is really the same regurgitation of the same idea or whatever. And I don't know why I do it. Maybe it's like I'm, I'm still addicted to having coffee in the morning and doing those little morning ritual things. Yeah. Reading. I used to read a newspaper all the time just to feel like I was in touch with the world somewhat, yeah. you know. Now it's like, wow, you can read about stuff that's going on in wherever, you know, Singapore or right. what's happening there. So yeah, the, the whole reading thing is you're reading a book, I guess. That's a thing. And I've been thinking about that, like all the things that you don't, Things that seem kind of almost antiquated, you know, writing a letter or something like that. I've got this good friend, Clay Smith, who writes me a postcard like once a month. It's the weirdest thing. It's some bizarre postcard, like some 50s, like Chinese lady holding a martini glass and smoking a cigarette and kind of laughing, you know. And I'm like, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's... It's a beautiful thing for posterity, too. My sister found a letter I had written her when I was 21. There it was. She took it out of a book and unfolded it, and it was my life at that moment written on a piece of paper, you know? And you wouldn't have that with an email or FaceTime. We'll have it with this conversation, but (laughs) rarely will you. And it's an interesting thing, too, because as songwriters, I find that it's really important to saturate yourself in stories and even fictional characters. And sometimes people, when they think, oh, I want to be original. I don't want to be influenced by other things. But the fact is, everything is a palette, your paint set. And the more colors you have and the more tools you have, the more interesting the picture is that you're going to paint from it. For sure. I mean, I think that, you know, I've been fascinated by human, human interest stories. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what it is. And I used to really be into thrifting and stuff like that, going to like garage sales, estate sales. I still kind of like doing that. And I remember when I lived in L.A., I went to this garage sale and I found this huge collection of Outer Limits, which is a science fiction TV show in the 60s. And I had all of it on VHS. They were all on tapes. And I think when I lived, first moved to L.A. in the early 90s, I still had one of those, you know, VHS tape thing. And I pop it in and I start watching all the different episodes. And most of them are really cheesy science fiction. Like the characters had weird masks that looked pretty cheesy, like somebody, you know, made it with like, you know, paper mache or something like that. But what I loved was not that stuff, but the story about, you know, humankind and people's stories of how they treat each other, you know, paranoia and all this stuff. And I thought, wow, this is really incredible. Those kind of things really interest me. And whether they're fictional or for real, I mean, some of the more realistic stuff is amazing. It's just as mysterious as 
things that writers have come up with, you know, mm -hmm. real stories and stuff. But anyways, yeah, the thrifting thing. And then also buying something that somebody bought, you know, like a chair that somebody sat in for a long time, you know, and now you're reupholster it and now it's serving you. And I don't know. It's kind of corny, but I like that kind of stuff. Well, I don't know how corny it is, but it is a way into stories and human nature. And even, I don't know what happened to this chair before, but if I really listen, what's the story that's going to come to me about where this chair was before? And then you have a story or a song out of it or a line or a title. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, yeah, reeling it into that, I was really taken by the soundtrack of The Outer Limits, which was done by uh, this composer named Dominic Fontier or something. Mm -hmm. And the music was incredible. It was like really spacey and really haunting. And so I bought this whole soundtrack and it had all the different episodes of Outer Limits. One of it was called something like The Man Who Wasn't or Never Lived or something like that. And so I turned around and I wrote a song called The Man Who Never Was. And it never made the radio or anything like that, but it's a really cool song. It's got, you know, this kind of Spanish Latin kind of groove to it. And it was just about, you know, somebody that just exists in your mind or whatever, or maybe a part of you wanting to be someone existing in your mind. Yeah. But yeah, you're getting those ideas from inspired from other people's work. I think is also very valid. Like I think anybody, any artist, if you're a painter or, or a singer or anything, you all, everybody has influences like what got them into music, you know? And so I think that goes, you know, I mean, maybe there's a songwriter that has no influences at all. I don't know how that could be because you're influenced by everything and drawing upon, you know, how you grew up or, you know, the situation you're in right now. Yeah, it never comes out the same either. If you think, I've been taking some writing classes and the writing teacher, he wants us reading all the classics and sometimes he have students write something in the style of one of the masters. Mm -hmm. Wow. Lots of classic detective novels like Dashiell Hammett or something. And I asked him, I said, okay, well, you're so knowledgeable. If you're reading a book, do you notice if the writer suddenly goes into one of those voices like... And he said, people do it all the time. It's just another tool. You could be talking one way and then for a line, you could say, how would so-and-so, how would Dylan say this line, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it really, it, songwriting to me is a matter of fluidity and enthusiasm and just showing up, you know? Yeah. I think I heard or read something that David Bowie said is something like, you know, being a songwriter is you have to be good at plagiarizing or something. And if you're going to plagiarize, it's got to be the best or whatever. And I, I was like, hey, I'm in that I'm in that club, definitely. I've plagiarized in style mostly, I think, not necessarily hearing somebody's idea that, you know, and stealing it and then putting it out. But I totally agree with that. And, and it's good. It, it's sort of like that lineage, like, who was that? I, I read this book by Nick Toshes, who wrote this, I think it was called Country, and it's about the origins of country music. Yeah. And it goes all the way back to, like, some fiddle in Ireland or something like that that made its way to, like, 
North Carolina, and then it had etched on the back Thalia or something or Thalia, and that is supposed to be like this archaeological line of where that music came from. You know, I wonder what year, what sixteen hundreds or something like that. I think I read the book a long time ago, but it really stuck with me. I thought, wow, okay, so somebody really did all this research to figure out the origins of that, which is great. I think archivists, that is such a great service that people want to preserving film or music with what they do to keep it going, you know, for other generations to appreciate. I think that's very noble and hard to keep up on even your own stuff. I've got drives of thousands of songs. I have everything on cassette and those the bags of cassettes are staring at me and I have a cassette player and I got a Porta studio so I could get all that stuff and you don't want to live in the past when you're in the present. You want to do something new. I always say, well, yeah, I'll do when I'm 80, you know, I'll I'll do it later. Yeah. <laughs> right now, I'm still making my life, but yeah. you got to do it at some point. That's great. Well, I was looking back over work you've done, all the songs with Cheryl. I feel like 1996, when you started working with Cheryl, was the year that we were crossing over in Laurel Canyon. Yeah. And I remember then you were really into collecting old records, and I was too. I would go to thrift stores and I'd sample weird, crazy strings from ballroom dancing. And we were both into that. And yeah, and I remember you, I don't know how you met Cheryl, but I remember you coming over and saying, yeah, I think I'm going to work with Cheryl Crow, and uh, I'm not going to do the next Tears for Fears tour. <laughs> and, and then me being, you know, well. Hey, Louise, hey. do you want to play in Tears for Fears? <laughs> hey, I can't do the gig anymore, but... I think you're a great guitar player. Can you do it? <laughs> I really felt like, well, I'll call everybody I know in the band, and it's a long shot, but yeah. I mean, I have that tour to thank for my tinnitus. Oh, gosh. I didn't get the memo of the occupational hazard. At the beginning of that time, I don't know what happened with Cheryl. I know there was some kind of wire train, Cheryl, a little bit of overlap there. Yeah, well, I knew her, how I met Cheryl well, it was before 96. It was probably right after after Tears for Fears. So that would have been 93 or 92, something. I don't know. It's all a blur to me now. But if I go on YouTube, oh, yeah, then it was then. Right. But I met her through the producer, Bill Bottrell, you know, who has done a lot of great work. I think he's worked with Michael Jackson. I think he wrote Black or White. He even did the rap in the middle of it, which I find funny. He did it on the demo, and then that ended up becoming Michael. I think Bill thought, like, oh, Michael will probably get some real rapper to do it, but this is kind of how it goes. And then I think Michael was enchanted by the fact that Bill even attempted to do that and then thought, hey, I'm going to just use Bill's voice, you know? But anyways, the very last, I was in this band, Wire Train, and our last record was produced by Bill Bottrell. And that's how we met. And we had recorded at Bill's studio in Pasadena, which is called Toad Hall. And I think I went down, I don't know, it's a little blurry how I met her. I mean, I knew her through, like I knew Kevin Gilbert, and I knew he was dating some girl named Cheryl who was like amazing keyboard player and this and that. And I think after Wire Train had done a record, I had left all this equipment over at Bill's studio. And then I thought, you know, it's been there for a while. Maybe I should go down and pick it up. And anyway, so I went down there and Bill was working with Cheryl. And I didn't really know. I knew her name, but not from 
I don't think she even had the first record out at the time. And I was picking up gear and, and Bill introduced me to her. And, and I think I had, remember that guy, what was his name? He was a guitar builder, Farrington. You remember? I know Danny Farrington very well. Dan- Danny Farrington. Yeah. Danny had loaned me, I think it was like a baritone guitar or something uh-huh. like that, like a custom one. And that was one of the, the items that I needed to pick up and to return to Danny, of course, you know. And Cheryl was like, oh, what is that guitar, you know? Yeah. And I said, oh, it's a baritone. It's kind of in between a bass and a guitar. Mm-hmm. It's low, but it's not quite as low as bass and it's lower than a guitar oh well can you play me something on it so i could hear what it sounds like sure so i just kind of because my gear was set still hanging out or whatever and i plugged in this bare tone and i'm like playing i don't just noodling around and she's like oh what's that is that a song and i said no i'm just noodling around and she's like oh do you mind if i record that or whatever and i'm sure i don't care you know as i'm collecting my gear i can't believe like i'm being put to work so anyways that sort of led to so i'm like after that i'm at home and i'm writing my own songs because i'm thinking okay at this point i'm gonna just start working on a solo record Mm -hmm. so i had written a bunch of songs and then i get a call from Bill, hey, you know, Cheryl really liked your vibe. You're so easygoing and fun. Come on down and hang with us. So, okay. So I go down to the studio. This is, I don't know, maybe a month after that first meeting. And, you know, I'm just listening to what they're doing. And it's a song called Can't Cry Anymore. And Cheryl goes like, man, it'd be great to have some backup vocals on this or something. And Bill goes like, oh, Jeffrey's a great backup singer. He could do harmonies and stuff like that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, I did for my own band, yeah. but I never thought of myself as doing studio work, singing harmonies for somebody. I, you know, that wasn't really anything that I had ever done before other than, you know, my own band. And so I I ended up singing these sort of Beatlesque harmonies on this song, Can't Cry Anymore. And then that is actually where it all started. So then I got asked to like, hey, you know that little guitar thing you did? Do you want to finish up writing it with me? And I'm like, sure. So we wrote this really dark song that ended up in the X-Files, like some song, the, and it's called On the Outside. And it was very depressing kind of tune. And it was used for X-Files, but it didn't make it on her Tuesday Night Music Club record. So that's how all that began. Yeah, I liked her. You know, I, I didn't really know her all that well, except for just hanging out in the studio with Bill and her. And then, and then eventually I got asked to write with her again and with Bill. And I had written a lot of songs, my own ideas and stuff like that. And one of them was If It Makes You Happy. And I had pretty much written the whole thing. And she said, hey, I love this song. It's really great. Would you mind if I added a verse to it? Or I think my second verse was like, it was pretty much like a placeholder lyrics. Like I had the, the first verse was pretty much the same as what ended up being on the record. But the second verse, I still really wasn't absolutely done with the song, but I thought, oh, well, somebody's interested in this song I've written. And then she ended up writing the verse that is serve you, you know, scrape the mold off the bread and serve you French toast again. It's something I would have never written anything mm-hmm. like that. But I think that Cheryl liked my colorful lyrics, you know, a lot of non sequiturs and just things that I thought sounded cool, mm-hmm. but probably didn't really mean anything other than I'm just trying to fill up the loss. You know, it was a song that I had written during a breakup and 
trying to fill up my heart. I had so much damage at the time. I didn't know how to process, you know, having heartbreak in that way that was so deep that I ended up trying to fill it in with all these things that made me feel better or whatever. And Isn't that what we do with songs anyway? I mean, create a world that's a better world for us to live in than better world we're feeling. Yeah, it's trying to make sense of like, how could this person possibly leave me? <laughs> so, and then also like trying to kind of therapy, therapeutic too. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to make sense of what just happened to me. I don't know. What am I going to do? I mean, a lot of it was like a laundry list of, you know, going to the thrift store jungle and buying stuff. You know, that's usually one of the things a lot of people do, or at least speaking for myself, you know, sometimes you're feeling shitty. Oh, I'm going to go out and buy something. Maybe I'll feel better if I go and get this thing. That'll at least be a temporary fix, you know. So going to a thrift store and finding some really cool, rad velvet jacket or something some weird hat you know that yeah. was kind of go you back know. to what we know go back to what you know yeah that made me feel good rummaging through maybe i can say i can give this somebody else's treasure that became garbage to them maybe now it'll be my treasure you know for a while and in some ways symbolically looking at that might have been saving something that was loved or whatever i don't mm -hmm. know if that makes sense but and not that I'm a materialistic guy, I guess to a degree, I guess everybody is sort of a little bit collecting gear and all that, but those are my tools and stuff. So that's kind of where all that song came from. And then really the first time that I'd collaborated with someone lyrically, because before that, being in Wire Train, I helped write in that band. But the lead singer did most of the lyric writing. Kevin. Kevin Hunter, yeah. And the only way I could contribute was musically. So not that I didn't have lyrics. I always have ideas and stuff like that. But I felt like he had a certain style. Maybe what I would contribute to that wouldn't really fit in. It wouldn't, wouldn't really make any sense. Because maybe in his mind, he's singing this thing and it has to mean something to him. But my weird little oblique idea probably would not resonate with him. So I I sort of relegated my role to just, okay, well, I could come up with a riff or something that is memorable. Mm -hmm. But meaning Cheryl, she liked my ideas. She was like, oh, gosh, I would never write that. But then I could write this. And she really... Out of everybody I've written with in my entire life, she understands. You know, she's like, well, I don't get what you're trying to say here. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally, but I think that sounds really cool. So <laughs> I'll try to make it work. And over the years, we, we spent a lot of time on the lyrics. And even though I think the perception of people in the industry is probably like, oh, yeah, Jeff, try. He writes some really great tracks and stuff like that. Like I'm thought of as a track guy, but it's not entirely true because I do write lyrics. I do write complete songs. I put out a solo record, but there's some people that I do click with writing lyrically. Not everybody, but she is definitely, I've had the most, we have a good flow to together yeah. you know like maybe when she's getting very literal she wants something that's a little twisted and she goes what would you say here 
you know. I think of you as not just a track guy. I mean, all those songs with Cheryl, I look at as total lyrical, musical collaborations with storytelling and a lot of social commentary. And yeah, yeah, the whole perception thing is I'm not really in the music business in that way. And I like it. Like, I don't work with publishers. I don't work with, it's not like I'm saying I never will, but <laughs> I like to keep my ideas vital and I feel like if I go and start changing them one day for this person and that collaborator and show up in a room and do that somehow I won't have the same freshness with ideas totally so yeah I feel like you're an artist who can work with other artists and you don't have to stick with just you singing your songs you know other people can sing them. yeah yeah the collaborator that's my art I think or my medium is collaboration and so I feel like it's funny having lived in California for a long time and then just recently you know four years ago moving to Nashville I think I've learned so much about the craft part of it but I always feel like in some ways you know, the stuff that I've learned has been helpful in helping other people write their songs and stuff like that as a writer. And I guess that's really the important thing. But I kind of feel like the thing that I used to do before I knew what all the little tricks were and all that stuff is I think I explored other possibilities that I don't do as much now. But then with this COVID era, I'm realizing, hey, I should just be writing solo as well as collaborating with people. I've maybe dropped the ball on doing that, which feeds the other, you know. So I've been kind of working on a few new tracks of stuff that I've written. And I'm hoping that 2021, that I can spring those out on the few that will want to listen. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a whole different game now, too. I mean, there there are people coming out on major labels who I suppose somebody still makes money selling records, a very small percentage of everybody making music. But we're in this other land from the land we grew up in. Yeah. Even the land we were in as adults in the 90s or the turn of the century. Yeah. It's so different now where everybody's got a fan base of their own and puts out into that fan base whatever they want. If it's that they do art on teacups as well as sing a song, <laughs> as well, it's really just about this diversity of interaction with people you're talking to. It's no longer, here's my new record and that's all I do. I make the record, put it out, tour it. I think maybe it's about a little more than that for so many artists now. I don't know. Where are you with that? I, well, I think newer artists seem to be more, even more in tune to their marketing and stuff, which is something that I would, had no interest in when I was first starting out. I was just like, hey, this sounds cool. Hey, I'm gonna listening to music and stuff. Now people have seem like they're so very well trained. People sing, you know, because of auto-tune, everybody's singing perfectly in pitch. It's like, oh, but I can't discern who is who, you know, like, gosh, that that's, it's funny. I and mean, I've got a 14 year old son that, you know, constantly playing stuff for me. And, and I hear some really amazing artists and stuff that he's interested in but then there gets to be a point where i can't tell the difference between one person and the other because they're using auto-tune and they sound virtually the same because they sound like robots and stuff like that and maybe that's and that's cool 
I mean, I like okay, craft work, and they use the vocorder. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the yeah. auto-tune thing for a minute. Okay, so maybe somebody's listening to this who doesn't know Sheryl Crow and doesn't know your history, and this is the first time. So as musicians who came up in a different time, explain why auto-tune is offensive. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> Okay, so for me, what's offensive about it, and, you know, Sometimes if something's irritating, like if someone's done a performance and there's one syllable that's so flat, like you may do something to that one syllable. But okay, so old school, people would get in the mic and they'd cut with the orchestra live at the same time. And that was it. Recording was a record of what happened. Yeah. This piece together fantasy of what happened. It was a record of what happened. So my thing on that is that it's flaws that make people human and lovable. And, yeah. And true with songwriting too. You know, I tell people if you're going to write something, figure out the thing that you most don't want people to know about you and amplify it because that's something, <laughs> that's something that everybody has. And something about having Instagram and all the filters and things on our cameras, every flaw that we have where I don't like it and you clean it up and then so nobody will see my flaws. And then you have these feeds where you just have these like perfect people. So, yeah. Well, I think... You know, that what you just said about, you know, years ago, people would go to a studio and then there would be like the whole band or orchestra and you're singing. What I love about that is like, okay, the singer more often than not probably really learned the song and tried to sing it to the best of their ability. But the thing that is really amazing is you can hear the excitement of the artist's voice. You know, this like Tina Turner, you know, singing, what was that? River Deep. The thing that struck me when I first heard that recording was, oh my God, I can hear her get excited about singing this and her voice is cracking and it's going a little bit like it's going a little sharp. But then that made me excited hearing that. So, and that connected to me, you know, just recently when I mentioned my son playing me Kid Cudi or some artist and he's like hey want to listen to kid cuddy's new record you know sure you sure play he goes i don't know if i like it as much you know oh well what do you not like about it you know he says well here and he puts it on and i'm listening to it and i'm like oh that sounds really good you know it sounds oh it sounds pretty polished you know like really polished he goes yeah he goes okay i'm gonna play you his second record listen to this i'm listening to it i'm like Oh, it is much better because there's like things that he's exploring without the auto tune and stuff like that, that are a little pitchy, but they sound kind of scary. And so that like adds the, whatever the flavor, the ambiance of that song much more. Just like when the, this is really old school, but like, you know, when I hear 1973 Rolling Stones, I can hear Keith hitting out of time and all this stuff, but it's because he's in the moment and he's so excited and that registers with me. It's not the perfection, but it's the spirit, you know? Yeah, the spirit. The spirit. That's the thing that is missing, you know? But yeah, I think some people it kind of works for, I'd say like to a degree, Kanye West, sometimes that auto-tune as an effect or whatever does sound really good with some of his stuff and he doesn't always do that but i think that is believable for what he's doing 
So to be fair, auto-tune isn't entirely bad. I understand, you know, even old school listening to John Lennon's Across the Universe running through a Leslie speaker or whatever, it's like very treated and stuff like that. But that took me on a journey somewhere. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is from the heavens. <laughs> it's intentional. It's the intention intentional, is to yeah. hide. The intention is to use it. It's a different thing. I mean, I'm not going to be a purist about any of these things, but we're in an age where everything's automated and computerized. So it makes sense that computers would be the tools of our trade. They are. But vocals are the one place where it's amazing. Like I can play in any kind of mood, but I just can't sing in any kind of mood. Because if I'm really sad or grieving, the voice just exposes everything. Yeah, it does. You know, for better or, or for worse, you know? Yeah, anyway, so River Deep, Mountain High, Tina Turner... Those were the days. And every time I see you, you're always working with so many cool people. I remember we had breakfast in Nashville. Somebody walked in who you were working with when we were having breakfast. Oh, I guess he was in Jason Isabel's band, that guy. Oh, yeah. Sadler Faden. Yeah. You know, he's one of those guys. He's a young guy that, you know, learned all of the early Bowie stuff and all the cool guitar stuff that Mick Ronson did and everybody else. And he listens to new music and old. I think that's the thing is like, you know, I look at myself as like a music fan, really, mm -hmm. when it comes to and then I, hey, I know how to create it, too. And I have an enthusiasm for music original music i really do and i think that's what's carried me as long as it has many years of being in music i originally went to school to i majored in telecommunications because i wanted to be a dj i love playing music you know listening to albums i worked at a ham radio station that got busted we had this little station and we played like punk rock and all these crazy things and we got busted from the FCC. That's what I wanted to do is I wanted to be a DJ and play stuff that I was turned on to by various people or whatever I discovered. And as I was doing that, I was playing music too, but I thought I'm not really good enough to be a pro. I never even thought that I could be performing and playing, but I ended up playing in a lot of bands and then eventually I was asked to play with Wiretrain and that began my professional career. They got signed and then I was, oh, I'm a professional musician now. And then I, I did get my commercial broadcasting license, but I never completed college and I only did two years, got my license, but then I got signed in this band. And from there, I've been a professional musician you know, for a long time. Yeah. So, uh, San Francisco? Yeah, I was in San Francisco. You know, band was wire trained. It was in the mid 80s. And we did a lot of touring in Europe, in the UK, which is how I met Carl, you know, from touring. Wire Train supported the Waterboys, which was a band Carl yeah. was in. But he had left them already. Yeah, Hole of the Moon. That was like the big song that he wrote with, with yeah. Mike. Yeah. Mike Scott. And that's how I got connected with Carl. Carl saw our last show at the Hammersmith Odeon with the Waterboys. And then Mike Scott asked me to do their encore. And so the encore was Purple Rain. 
And so I had to play the solo in Purple Rain. I'm not, okay, look, I'm a pretty decent guitar player, not a great soloist. I always thought of myself as a good rhythm guy, but Mike thought that I was a great soloist. So I had to do like that big blazing solo in Purple Rain. And Carl was in the audience and saw that. And after, at the end of the show, he was like, dude, you have to play in my band. Because I'm making a record. Can you stay in the UK and do, make this record? And I was like, who's this weird little guy? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> intriguing, you know, kind of quasi Beatle, like kind of look like John Lennon meets Yoko Ono or something like that. And I like, I was flattered, but I was like ready to go home. So I passed on playing on that Private Revolution record, which I'm forever regretting that I didn't play on that. But then after Wire Train ended up breaking up after this tour and all this stuff. And then when Carl was getting ready to do his second record, which was Goodbye Jumbo, he invited me. And it was perfect because I wasn't doing anything. And like I ended up going out to his place in uh, where was it? He was he was living in the countryside, just like Woburn Abbey was the name of the place. Or I can't think it was somewhere outside of London. And then he eventually moved to London, North London, you know, at John Henry's Hire, which is in the Holloway Road or something. Mm -hmm. Tangent city here. But yeah, that's where I met him and then started doing that record and, you know, got to experience maybe about a year of living in London, more or less on and off. And, you know, that was that was such a great experience for me. All the music, meeting Guy Chambers, playing in a band with Guy Chambers and Chris Sherrick, who went on to play with Oasis. And I mean, that band was really like, wow, a lot of great people. David, David Catlin Birch. Yeah. Like really incredible. Meeting him, it was like, I, I felt like I was meeting somebody that was like George and Paul Beatle, you know. <laughs> who are you? Are you George Harrison? Are you Paul McCartney? Well, you could kind of, yeah, you know. And he knew every part of every Beatles song ever. Right, you know? he was in Beatlemania at one point. Yeah. And I think he said he played different Beatles at different times. So he, he knew <laughs> the parts on different instruments. Yeah. He was amazing. He still is. Yeah, He's he still was. incredible. And... uh I remember doing the world party shows, you know, doing like vocal warmups before. And he got me to do that, do the scales and then like, okay, Jeff, let's sing some kink songs. Okay, you're going to do this harmony. All before, I felt like I did a whole show before we even went out on stage, you know, like sang for like a half hour of all these 60s British kinks. The Who, I, I mean, he's like an encyclopedia of all of the best of the 60s. And he's done something where he's doing all the songs of Sid Barrett or something. Incredible, I know. Like Yeah, amazing. This, yeah, the Sid Solo, Baby Lemonade and Gigolo Ant and all those kind of crazy songs, you know. See, this is a really fertile ground you're talking about here. You're talking about the creme de la creme of the eccentric enthusiasts who really know songs coming up from the best of English and American rock bands and the music that they made from their enthusiasm. And the enthusiasm came from the inside out, really like... What is the space part doing on this song that I love? What is that piano thing? What does that piano sound? And that's just breeded its own incredible music. Yeah. 
Yeah, in some ways, I still feel like, I think like the Beatles ruined it for us all. They, they did everything. <laughs> like, hey, save us some. I mean, not entirely, but, you know, they definitely forged the modern music and they did everything, like really heavy songs that we could have been considered almost heavy metal, like Helter Skelter. I mean, that riff and they did funky. They might not have done like, well, no, I guess they kind of did the blues and soul thing really well, too. Yeah, all that all that early 60s, the British invasion stuff, I always still have a real fondness for, as well as recognizing all the great music that has come from America from the United States, the soul and blues and R&B and jazz, you know, yeah. like I'm really rediscovering jazz through my son. I've been listening to like Herbie Hancock and all of that. But all that adds to being a music enthusiast. And then that feeds the writing aspect of what I try to do. Yeah, and this is a significant thing, too, is it's also there's a funny Kevin Hunter story that ties into this. But when you, <laughs> when you have your gear, whatever it is, however faulty it is, however limited it is, when you know it, like the back of your hand, where you have an idea for a song, you flip that on, you set that up, and you're ready to go. And you don't, it's like driving, you don't even have to think about any of it. And you do that every single day, which is to me what I imagine the Beatles had for six years. They had each other, they had a groove, you know, they had a way of doing things. And they didn't have to think about, oh, how, how does this thing work? Let me, oh, let me open YouTube here and see if I can figure out how to get this interface working. <laughs> it was just go, 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 go. And when you move and then have kids and then you have a publisher and you're writing with this person who's got this whole other vision of themselves and you're trying to lock into it, it's easy to lose that flow. Yeah. At some point, you know, I don't want another plug-in. Sorry, I don't want another microphone. <laughs> I don't want another piece of gear because just give me three of them and a good song idea and that's that's my best shot at writing a song, really. And then I can do all that afterwards. It's like editing, you can always edit. But to come up with the idea first, you just have to let yourself go and not keep yeah. stopping yourself. Well, to me, the fascination with songwriting is that it's the mystery of it. Like, you don't know where you're going to end up. You can visualize, hey, you know, today I'm going to write about you know, world without color or something like that, or whatever it is, and then go there. And it might end up turning into something that has nothing to do with that. But the momentum, it carries you somewhere, you know, and taking a hike or whatever, you find this other little trail that goes off and it's like, oh, wow, I've never realized that this existed. And I think that's what also keeps me interested in writing more and more because it's that journey. Like, I don't know what this is thumbing through my phone these days with little lines or a title or something like that. I mean, most of the time, those things don't ever come back or they're like the flint or whatever. It just gets the action happening and it'll go wherever it does. And that part of it, it really fascinates me. Wow, we didn't have this before. We have, look at what we have now. We have this idea that maybe this is a thought and then look where it took us. And hopefully it goes further and it makes, you know, somebody that's listening to it happy or whatever makes them feel uh, good or, you know, or verifies their sadness or whatever makes them overcome. There's a lot of different functions for music. Yeah. So 
I love that getting out of the way you have something and it's back to the, the quote about a child. You nurture it and then it leads you to new places and to have the humility to follow and not be trying to control where it's going to end up is part of the job, really. Yeah. Knowing when it needs a nudge and then also knowing, okay, just let this thing be free or whatever. Yeah. You can guide the idea so far, especially when you're collaborating, I think, too. Sometimes there can be a danger of trying to, you've got your idea, maybe you're writing it for somebody else. And then just more recently, I've thought, well, but this singer has got to feel this. They've got to feel an attachment to this. I mean, whether or not they write the lyric or not. I mean, a lot of times I feel like when I write with an artist that's putting a record together, I want to make sure that they have that attachment to the thing that we're doing, you know. So I feel like I got to make sure that, that that's happening, you know, that they have that, they feel connected to whatever it is. That's great. And, uh, it's a great service. I think so. I'm grateful that anybody wants to work with me. <laughs> but I um, think but, like, wait a minute. Uh, the, yeah, being hard on yourself as we all can be at times. To tell you this Kevin Hunter story is that I once had a spring reverb that I had in London brought it back to America. It, it was a pain in the butt because it had a different AC and I was probably seduced by all the new technology. So I gave it to Goodwill. And then I went to Kevin Hunter's studio and he had it. He saw it and he bought it. <laughs> and I was like, that's <laughs> my spring reverb. Hey. And he's like, well, it's mine now. What kind of spring reverb was it? Do you remember? I don't remember. It was black and it had a couple of knobs on it. That was it. It was just like knobs too. Wow. Was it English or? Yeah, it was. It, it wasn't like a fancy piece of gear. It was probably very cheap, but cheap then is our favorite sound now. Yeah, exactly. All that. Yeah. And it was like the 90s. But yeah, I, I also wanted to ask you because we didn't talk about Hootie and the Blowfish, but you did that, you know, not so long ago, that record. Yes, Imperfect Circle. Yeah. It was interesting. I had met them when I was touring in the sort of mid late 90s because when Cheryl and I were touring for her second record we were playing a lot of the same circuits like I remember one time we played the Roseland in New York City and I think Hootie and the Blowfish were there and they came to our show it was sort of like they would always be arriving and then we would be leaving and then like you know we'd go to another city and oh hey it's those guys again and oh yeah yeah but then we never really played together or hung out we never played any shows together but i would be seeing those guys like constantly so they knew who i was mm -hmm. so scroll a couple of years ago i was hanging out with this guy chris parr who manages darius rucker and you know we were just talking about music and bonnaroo and all this stuff and he just said hey you know hootie and the blowfish are gonna make a record i'm like oh wow yeah well it's some anniversary of their big record and crack review and he goes, I think I would love for you to hang out with them and maybe write some songs because they're collecting songs and this and that. They don't have a producer, uh, so it's still kind of early on. So I ended up flying out to Charleston, South Carolina, which is an incredible place. Pretty amazing. And got to hang out with the four of those guys. And we were getting ready to write something. And... They said, well, hey, can we play you what we've been working on? So they played me a couple of songs and, you know, they were like, well, these are just kind of rough ideas, you know. Oh, hey, I really like this one song, Turn It Up. 
And, uh, you know, is there anything that you would do differently or what, what do you think this needs? Cause we kind of feel like it's not really there yet. And I said, well, I like the whole like kind of Island reggae vibe that it has is this song about sort of a little homage to Bob Marley and all that battle boy, you know, living in poverty and then getting out of the ghetto and becoming a big star. I thought that's a great idea for some, well, anyway, so we threw around a bunch of different ideas. I gave them, Hey, what about changing this? line to this or whatever and then wrote for a couple days and then went home and then like a week later hey jeff do you want to come back out we're going to work a little bit more we like those ideas that you had so they just started sending me like dropbox 60 70 songs i'm like oh my god okay the thing that was interesting working with them is they didn't tell me who wrote what they just said well what do you think of these songs i don't care for this one but i really like this one here and then after a while, I could tell like by the look on their face, who was excited. Oh, you like my song. <laughs> but I think that they trusted me because I was listening to it just purely objectively. And the cool thing is working with these guys are roughly my age, maybe a little younger, a little bit younger than me. But we had a, this kinship because, oh, you're from playing in bands and this and that. You understand where we're coming from, the politics of being in a band, trying to be democratic and, you know, two songs from this guy, two songs, how that all works. I mean, when you're working with one artist, there's nothing that you have to rally for. It's just either they like it or they don't like it. And in a band's situation like these guys who've been around for a long time, have had some pretty massive hits. And then you have Darius Rucker, who's had his own solo career and all that stuff trying to navigate through that and help them give them a little objectivity on my part it was a pretty natural thing they're really great people and even though i hadn't been close friends with them but knew them on the periphery or through touring and all that stuff i became really good friends with all of them that was a really great experience and stuff the hard part was hey we want to sell a lot of records but we want it to be hootie and the blowfish so i also had a lot of pressure coming from the label wanting a country record because like rock doesn't sell anymore and country does and they're assigned to Darius's label so it was very difficult for me to navigate that because they were so adamant about like we do not want to make a country record we just want to do a record that our fans are going to really love just a hootie record and some of that has like southern rock influences and some country stuff but the kind of indie rock somewhere in the periphery of that is the hootie and the blowfish well i had a lot of their publishing companies sending me 50 60 songs hey they could do this this would be a hit for them on country radio and having to tell them this is what everybody is wanting you to do i'm just telling you i'm not saying i agree so I think you should just make a record. Be true to yourself. Your real fans are really going to want you to be who you are. They're not going to want some quasi-hybrid of you trying to be Blake Shelton. It was a little bit difficult. Not dealing with them, but showing them, okay, the world has changed. The commercial market has really changed. Even the stuff that I do with Cheryl, we've gotten to that point where like, gosh, we'd love a hit. But realistically, we got to stay true to who we are. Yeah, well, some guy was writing a book, some really hardcore fan that is doing a Hootie and the Blowfish book said like, how come you didn't release a record sooner? And I'm going, I was done it like before they even went out on the road. I had mixes 
But I couldn't get anybody from the label to say, hey, these are great. Hey, we don't hear a country hit. Well, it's not a country record. It's a Hootie and the Blowfish record. That's a very typical, <laughs> typical situation with dealing with the money people. The record companies seem so much simpler to have one person financing it than a company because you fall into the cracks. But what you just explained, it's very educational for somebody. Let's say somebody wants to be a producer. They're going into production and... What you say, all the empathy that you bring to the situation is your job is to balance all these influences, help the artists be true to themselves. And you've said throughout this interview, it's not about what you think is a good idea. It's about what the artist can feel and relate to. And your job is to usher that through and help support them with that, not to be a control freak. I'm the producer and here's what we're going to do. And you get out there on the microphone and I know you don't like this country song, but we're going to fire it up and get on the mic. I think maybe sometimes I feel like as someone that writes songs and also produces and plays on other people's records and this and that, I feel like sometimes I'm almost too much of a music fan. Like, I want to hear what this artist or this band, there's a reason why I like them. So why, you know, I want to hear more of that. I don't want to hear the same exact thing, but I want to believe it. And I think that it'd be very hard for those guys to be anything other than what they really are. They're really true to themselves. And even Darius was saying, we shouldn't make a country record. Maybe on my solo record, yeah, that's what I'm doing. But when we do Hootie and the Blowfish, you know, it's funny because he like, he always saying, hey, I'm just a singer or whatever. <laughs> I love hearing him say that. Hey, I'm just one of the other pieces. Like, because I've had this successful solo career, I don't feel like I have to be above everybody else, which I was really impressed with. Yeah, it, it's an important thing. Some people can choose, hey, yeah, I just want to sell a lot of records, so I'll just do whatever it takes. To a degree, we all want these records to get heard and appreciated, but you also are going to buy into it if you believe that they believe it. You know, of course, you have a little taste of having hits and stuff like that. You want everybody to love it and all that stuff. But I think, yeah, staying true to who you are rather than just trying to be somebody else's vision. Yeah, and also you have to live with your work for the rest of your life. A record company is a revolving door. You know, you live with what you do. So how are you feeling about social distance and all of that? Is there anything from this year, staying in one place, that you feel you would want to take with you going forward? We'll just say when the world opens up again. Yeah. You know, funny thing that COVID, I keep calling it the COVID era, because I guess it's pretty much what it is. The only thing that it changed for me, because I'm still like in a studio and I don't tour anymore, although I was doing some live performances like Songwriters in the Round, which is really a fun thing for me to do, go and hang with my peers and hear their songs and then hear how they wrote them and sharing. I was doing quite a bit of that. In fact, right before March this year, yeah, I'd gone to London, which I hadn't been there in a long time. And I did some songwriting, but then I also did a uh, Nashville style songwriters in the round there. And that was a blast. That's the one thing, yeah, I missed being able to do that. And then also being able to go and see artists that I work with performing live, seeing those songs come to life and hearing them 
through a big sound system or even in a good sounding club or even a crappy little hole, hearing those songs that you worked on, I miss that quite a bit. But, you know, being in quarantine, not being able to do all that stuff yet, you're really looking close at yourself and the things that do matter. I mean, the people that you love and trying to stay healthy and all that. Yeah, other people are saying this, but yeah, really looking at the things that are truly important to you, you know, maybe getting back and listening to some old records, you know, sneaking out to get some vinyl over at Grimey's or something like that whenever it's open, listening to new artists' vinyl. I love getting new vinyl. I mean, as much as I love going to estate sales and buying records there, of some old classics that I might not have, or even some that I've never heard, I love getting brand new vinyl from artists because it's just a great thing to support up-and-comers. And I'm not a purist. Some stuff sounds great on vinyl and some stuff just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't sound that great on vinyl. But maybe it's the ambiance of hearing it in the room, putting the record on. It's great. Yeah. I think that's a good thing. You know, it's like 20 bucks to buy a, a record a lot of times, new vinyl, seeing opening up that artwork and reading the credits. I still love doing that. Maybe that's not as important to some people or you have a playlist and you can just quickly run through it. But uh, yeah, so I look at what is really important, you know, trying to stay healthy and vital and have energy to give to my kids, you know, keep up with them. I can't really keep up with them, but being there for them, that's important to me. Staying in touch with people, friends that I've known for a long time, making sure you, you know, are still connected and making sure they're all right and they're doing okay. Yeah, it's great talking to you and the longevity is so appreciated. And it's kind of an amazing thing when I think back at times that I've shared with you or even in London, you know, like... You don't think that these situations where you met somebody in a pub or picking up your gear, you don't think you're going to know them way later in your life. And then I turn around and I go, you know, my friends are still the same friends. I I didn't realize then that I would still be wanting to talk to and interact with and share life with the same people. But you do. Yeah, you do. And it's amazing that you know, all this time can go by and then you reconnect with somebody and it's like virtually no time has gone by, even though like, okay, uh, you know, my hair is all gray. I've got older aging and all that stuff, but I, I still inside, I still feel pretty much the same, but maybe the experience. A lot. And it's really, it's quite amazing too. And the little momentary accidental things like picking your gear up that day and meeting Cheryl and I went to England for 10 days and I had just been in a band with Sarah Lee, the bass player, and she was moving to New York and I was moving to London. We just pretty much said, here's all the people I know in New York and here's all the people I know in London. And we both spent all this time having lives and careers with the other person's phone book in another place, you know? <laughs> Little momentary things when you're young. And, and that's one of the things about covid which is the things you'd mentioned are, I was playing this show and someone saw me, I was getting my gear. You know, these are physical places that you have to be. And I guess today we have to figure out how we meet people if we're staying in the bubble of our screens. 
Yeah, well, I'm hoping that, I mean, I'm still pretty optimistic that I don't think that things ever really go back to how they were. I mean, you, you have to move on, but I'm hoping, yeah, to have more, you know, opportunities to have those being with people in in person and all that stuff i'm sure it's going to happen you know eventually it's just so hard to conceive right now with everything even we have the vaccine that's going to take a while it's really taken its toll on a lot of people you know certainly i know a lot more about my friends (laughs) on uh, social media that i didn't know before some of it good some of it bad obviously you know, realizing, hey, we have some different, you know, political views and, you know, thoughts regarding to wear a mask or not to wear a mask. Oh, I had no idea that you feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, surprisingly, maybe with having all of this access to everybody's personal thoughts and all that stuff, you're really seeing, I mean, I'm sure I've lost a few old friends that didn't realize that I didn't think like they did, or maybe we never had those conversations Right, that's, before. yeah, it's a point. You know, don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion, don't talk about all these things. Let's just, you know, at least we have music. That's where we can meet in the middle. And not a great place things. to meet in the middle. Yeah. Because it is healing and it, yeah. It is. Well, I thank you for taking the time this morning. Yeah, anytime. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. Yeah, I'm sure you have. That's like, oh, yeah, gosh, that was an hour went by. Like, Yeah, it went by really <laughs> fast. I appreciate it. And it'll be fun to do some music together. For sure. Yeah, that I love to do anytime, really. Yeah. Having good conversation, coming up with some crazy, ridiculous Musical nonsense, right? Yeah. <laughs> good, it feeds the soul, you know. It's a good melting pot, all these influences. I'm thinking now, you know, all the influences, and I want to get some big, crazy, old-ass keyboards that make those... <laughs> those growling sounds. Well, you can find, like, okay, so I got this at a garage sale for a dollar. Yeah, Cassia. In fact, it has the price still on oh, it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love, I love Casios. This thing, I just, like, I found the little adapter to it, mm-hmm. I think, from Radio Shack quite a while ago. And then I can run it into a mic pre. But then I also run it through, like, pedals and stuff. And so it just doesn't even sound like... That's the cool thing. I mean, playing Casio sounds pretty intriguing still. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's a good X factor if you need. I don't know what to do with this track. Needs something different. And then a lot of times a new instrument or not necessarily a new instrument, maybe an instrument you haven't played before. It's got a song in there. It's amazing how often that happens. I think when I got this Casio, I ended up writing some kind of little rock song. I mean, I guess that's why we collect too. Maybe subconsciously we think, oh, yeah, my little gem will be hidden in there. You know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. That's a wonderful way to go. Well, I just got my Stratocaster also Ooh. back from my son. I haven't been playing a Strat in a oh, long that's time. Nice. Yeah. It needs a bit of tuning. Well, Jeff, thank oh, you. Oh, thanks a lot. Great to see you. Take care. All right. I'll talk to you soon. That was so fun. I want to thank my guest, musician, songwriter, producer, Jeff Trott, for taking the time to share his insightful thoughts on music making. Next time on Song Chronicles, I'll be talking to my longtime friend and legendary producer, Bob Ezrin. 
His lengthy, star-studded resume includes working with acts like Alice Cooper, Pink Floyd, Kiss, Lou Reed, Fish, and more. On Song Chronicles, you'll hear the -the behind-the-scenes stories told by music makers and music industry insiders themselves. You can check out the dozen episodes from our first season, which includes interviews with Gloria Estefan, Al Schmidt, Peter Case, Kathy Valentine, J.D. Souther, and more. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave a review on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you stream. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin. 